Blog Talk Radio. Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing underprivileged children with basic necessities of life. I'm also a board certified integrated holistic health energy psychology, positive psychology, and energy and vibrational sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where From the Heart Radio streams to you live each and every week. We bring you optimistic and uplifting information from interesting people, people who are making a positive impact in our world. And today, once again, we have Dr. Stephen Post, who has joined us in the past. Stephen is the author of the bestseller, When Good Things Happen to Good People, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, and most recently, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And that is our topic for discussion today. Stephen has worked at some of the country's most prestigious medical centers and is the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, 
Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University School of Medicine in New York, where he also serves as Professor of Family, Population, and Preventative Medicine, and Head of the Division of Medicine and Society. He is a rare blend of a scientist, Professor of Medical Humanities, Medical Chaplain, and Metaphysician. He, like Einstein and Nobel Prize Laureate Sir John Eccles, as well as others on the leading edges of science and medicine, acknowledges the human experience and openly explores the frontier of the mind and the idea of unitary intelligence that pervades everything, what he calls the infinite mind, an idea that is threaded from antiquity through the present, which philosophers, physicians, physicists, pastors, poets, and a lot of other people throughout the ages have observed as well. According to Stephen, there is a chorus of agreement affirming a universal one mind that subsumes and unites all individual minds. So he is also the president of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which he co-founded with Sir John Templeton in 2001. The Institute studies and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. And so we would love to welcome you to the show, Stephen. Thank you so much for taking time to be here yet again. It's always such a pleasure to have you join us on From the Heart Radio. How are you being? Well, uh, TV, I'm doing fine. I'm just happy as could be, and being on your show makes me smile. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> I'm so grateful. We always have such good discussions because your work is just so interesting, and this is a little bit different, and yet it's, mm-hmm. so, it's so moving and so needed, and I think it's misunderstood. So I'm really glad that we are having you on to talk about this today. You know, you've written so many inspiring books. Each one is spiritually moving, filled with wisdom, thought-provoking, and they come from your heart. And I find that this book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, particularly moving, perhaps because of the challenges of Alzheimer's disease itself. I find it is feared by most everyone. So for you, what was the catalyst to you writing this particular book? Well, everything is in the title, you know, Dignity yep. for Deeply Forgetful People. Um, you know, since my grandmother years and years and years ago uh, passed away of what was probably Alzheimer's, although they didn't use the word that much back in the day. It was more something like senile dementia. Um, I would visit her in the in the nursing home, and she could not converse with me. Her chin was down. Uh, she was not verbal. But uh, when I did assisted oral feeding with her, this was before they had nasogastric tubes and the like, uh, there was a kind of a ritual back and forth. And sometimes her eyes would brighten up. And surprisingly, at moments, she would actually call me by name, which was very surprising and not something that anyone would expect. But we call that nowadays in the field paradoxical Lucidity, And I just think that we need to realize that people who are uh, suffering from many, many conditions that cause dementia, it could be Parkinson's, it could be Alzheimer's, it could be uh, chronic traumatic encephalitis, a lot of different things. Uh, but the dementia itself doesn't mean that the person is gone. And I don't like the word dementia because it invites these negative images like gone, husk, shell, you know, dead. Yeah. And, and, and so we don't really take the time to notice and listen for the hints of a continuing identity underneath that uh, communicative breakdown. And it's there, I'm convinced. In fact, I'm doing a large study right now, a national survey about this, and an awful lot of caregivers have experienced that. There's something there that's a mystery, and, and the mind is more than the brain. Absolutely it is. Sure. You know, and when I read in your book that, you know, you saw your your grandmother become more forgetful, but never once did you ever think that her life was any less value than your own or anybody else's. You know, I, I mean, that's is that because she was your grandmother? Because I think sometimes that's not always the case. How old were you? Were you very, very young? No, no, I wasn't so young. Um, I was in my mid-20s. Okay, when old grandma really old, post yeah, passed yeah. away, yeah, but, yeah. you know it was a very formative experience. And when I'd been in, I'd been in high school up in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, and there was a Christian Science nursing home 
on Pleasant Street, just a few houses away from uh, the entrance to our school. And I would go down there and play some classical guitar and uh, interact with these individuals. And I realized that they're not that different than anybody else. I mean, they are deeply forgetful, but if you give them a chance, if you stimulate them with music, with uh, sometimes poetry, we had uh, Alzheimer's poets uh, in Brooklyn, uh, in Brooklyn Heights, there's a memory center. And you can take people who have been very, very much beyond the possibility, you think, of any kind of communication. You just write them off. But if you bring them into this center and they have these Alzheimer's who, who will read with spirit and energy and musicality something that, that these older adults will connect with, like The Road Less Traveled. Um, I'll tell you, about 70 to 80 percent of them will chime in. They'll start repeating verses. Uh, some of them will repeat a whole poem. And so if you, if you think about what you can do to bring them into themselves, and of course personalized music is hugely important, um, the, you know, there's the Alzheimer's choir called, called the Unforgettables in Manhattan wow. that you know comes out of NYU, and and these sometimes you know these, these are people who have not communicated for a long while, but when they're in a choir and they're singing a song that they remember from earlier in their life that they identify with, and there they are with their caregiver, lo and behold, um, they come alive inside, and um, and and they're capable after these uh, rehearsals of even some uh, communication for at least a few minutes. It may, it may be fleeting, but it brings great inspiration to the caregivers because they realize, you know, grandma's still there or my husband's still there and is not just dead and gone. Yeah, because I think that's what a lot of people feel. It's, it's that they're not there and acknowledging them in the same way that they were when they were lucid. Now, I know that you found success in communicating better with forgetful people through music and art and symbols and things like that. Um, You know, I just thought about this, and I don't know how to properly say this. I don't want to be derogatory in any way or insulting. But the the people, when they go, when deeply forgetful people are in that state of deeply forgetfulness, and then they're able to, like you said, they can – Somebody will read a poem, they can recite it immediately. Is it almost the same, or could it be similar to someone who is a savant? Yeah, so that's so, such an interesting question. You know, when, when these people come alive inside, and there's actually a documentary called Alive Inside that uh, a wonderful uh, guy uh, from here on Long Island uh, put together, and it won the first prize at uh, the Sundance uh, Festival uh, some years ago. Uh, but, you know, the, the, if you, personalized music is probably the most powerful connecting tool. You can take a song that somebody identified with when they were, say, in their 20s or 30s, uh, might be Frank Sinatra or whomever, and and if it, and if you use that, and, and particularly it's very effective with uh, with iPods, um, then you know the majority of people will chime in a bit, and 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 then they're actually more um, centered over the course of the day because the world is coming at them. They don't have a lot of insight. They can become agitated, but much less so when they've had these sessions of of music. Uh, which which settle them down, and there's a there's a less much less need for any kind of behavioral medications. <clears throat> so music is still you know it's the language of the angels if you will, and 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 so the interpretation uh, you know is the big question. What's going on? Is this just some fragment uh, of neurology that's firing off, and somehow a whole self, a whole identity returns? Uh, 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 to view, uh, or or is it something more profound? Is it is it really unveiling or revealing uh, the underlying continuity of self identity, which is spiritual, which is a basically people would think of that as the soul, as 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 our mind, which is part of a larger mind and is not derivative or dependent on brain, on tissue, on cells. You know, the, 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 I mean, it, it resides. 
uh, it resides in the uh, in, in the brain, but it not, it's not necessarily uh, derived from it. So when I was at the University of Chicago way back in the day, I had a great teacher who'd won the Nobel Prize uh, in the area of neurophysiology, and his name was Sir John Eccles, and he was a great scientist. He discovered pretty much everything we know. Uh, the basic models of how uh, brain cells uh, interconnect and communicate. And this is just a quote from Sir John Eccles. He said, I believe there is a fundamental mystery in my existence, transcending any biological account of the development of my body, including my brain, with its genetic inheritance and its evolutionary origin. So he just didn't think that, that biology explained everything there is about a human being. And I agree with that. I, yeah, I think I that's too, yeah. pretty much true. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so much more than just biology involved in it. It's interesting you say when the people are listening to music, you know, music therapy and all, right, um, mm-hmm. that, they're, that they're able to uh, calm down and become more, um, I don't know, do they become more lucid or just is, is the calming effect on them that helps them to remember other things? Is that, does that happen at that time frame, during that time frame? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've, we've written a lot of studies about this, and we've taken people who are deeply forgetful, sitting in wheelchairs at the VA home uh, 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 here, and uh, done musical interventions. Mm-hmm. How? In a group setting, Playing now, these are all veterans, right? So playing things like the Star Spangled Banner or God Bless America on uh, on a public uh, TV screen, which is nailed up on the wall, and uh, I will tell you that about 80% of these individuals will start singing, for example, the national anthem, and lo and behold, uh, a percentage of them, maybe 10 to 12 percent actually stand up and be saluting the flag that they see Aww. you know in the in the, in the in on on the screen uh blowing in the wind and um and then afterwards uh when when this uh intervention is 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 ended if you talk with them and you call them uh by name and you and you know how to communicate and there are some tricks to that trade um a certain percentage of them maybe and I'll say maybe 30 40% will be able to converse for anyway a few minutes, and then they go back sort of into their uh, former state. But as I said, you know, they're they're calmer, and they're and they're better off over the course of the day. And their caregivers are are uplifted because they don't think they're wasting their time anymore. They see it as very valuable because yeah. again, they're connecting with their loved one, and it's meaningful. Oh sure, it is. Now you've done this with music, standard, you know, diatonic scale music. Have you ever worked with anything that creates a vibration like quartz crystal singing bowls to see how people react to that? I'm a sound therapist, and that's what I use. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think there's a lot to be said for that. So I have a colleague here who used to be the head of family medicine. His name is Jeff Trilling, and he he went into this same nursing home years ago, um, and he plays a little flute, um, mm-hmm. and but but it's 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 kind of, it's it's sort of a uh, an Asian style flute, and it's not the sort of standard uh, tonality of of the West. And uh, he says, and he's, actually, he's in the book. He's, he, I, I talk about his what, what yep. his experiences. He's in the book, and he says that there was a, a tremendous sort of calmness that came about uh, in in these individuals, and that, that they would hum, they would they would follow him around. So I think you can connect with with music because music is so is so deep and so profound and so um if it's done well it connects with that inner being uh, uh which which is so so much present if we'll just notice it look look for it hint you know that one of the one of the people who endorsed this book is Larry Dossi who wrote One Mind and 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 all these best-selling books about prayer and meditation and spirituality and and he loved it because he really thinks that this is this is true because someone becomes deeply forgetful. It doesn't mean that they're they're no longer fully there, that they're worthy of respect and honor. They still have consciousness, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. and by the way, the fact that you refer to these people and it's in your title is 
deeply forgetful people. To me, that is a very kind and a dignified way to refer to those with these issues. I mean, it just, it takes the fear away because I think Alzheimer's scares an awful lot of people. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, dementia is like a them versus us kind of word, you know. Mm-hmm. It's actually structured like the word retard, you know, a, to decline mm-hmm. from a former mental state. Retardation is never having gotten to a certain mental state. But it's it's actually somewhat derogatory. And if you listen to political discourse, I'm sorry to say, there are a lot of people who refer to their antagonists as demented. And I yeah. don't like that. So. Right. So, 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 you know, deeply forgetful connects us. It makes it more of a, of a spectrum of a, you know, you know, and, and, and we all have our moments. I mean, when I'm in this school, I should know everybody's name, but some days I'll forget names and I'm a little embarrassed and, and I'm not quite sure how to handle it, but it happens. Or I might be out in the, in the garage and on, uh, in the basement here, and I'll ask a medical student if they remember where I parked my car, and I have no reason to think they do. But you know, you, I mean, we all have we all have moments of surprising forgetfulness, and sometimes it's very deep, and we're wondering what's going on with our minds. And this is just a human experience, that, and 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 it can occur at any age. So I I, I think we have to realize it's it's not so different than what we, we, we know about. Well, and I think, too, that, I mean, I'll go far to say, so far as to say that in the last three years, you know, memory, slight memory loss of things and such, as you're talking about, is across the board due to the fear and the stress from everything that we hear and read and see over every media outlet available. You know, to me, that's part of the stress we've all endured. Yeah. And that can, that overwhelms your mind, I think. Amen. But there is definitely a difference between normal, if I can say that, forgetfulness versus something more serious where we should seek professional help. Yeah, that's really true. So, uh, you know, uh, if you go back 20 years, uh, the neurologists didn't think that stress contributed directly to the onset of Alzheimer's. Now they all do. It's one of the six pathways. There can be genetic elements. There can be all kinds of elements. But the fact that there's so much anxiety and protracted stress, so, so you know, that, those stress hormones left turned on over a long period of time, they'll affect metabolism. So you're converting uh, metabolites into fatty acids and people have higher levels of vascular disease. They also have a little slower wound healing. But the amazing thing that, that is now not at all controversial is that the hippocampus which is that little part of the brain that's responsible for laying down new memories that atrophies, it diminishes in size and texture. And that's why people can have uh, Alzheimer's-related dementia or Parkinson's-related dementia. They have a lot of different kinds of dementia. And they can still have uh, deep memories of the past, which you, can, which you can draw on symbolically. You can bring that out. But the, their short-term memory is, is almost completely gone, and that's because it's the hippocampus. So they can't go shopping anymore because they can't remember what they wanted to buy. But they can still tell you something about grandma. Yeah. Yep. But isn't it important for people to realize that, you know, if you, if you consistently are trying new things to work your brain, crossword puzzles and Sudoku or whatever, you know, those types of things, mm-hmm. it helps? with that so that you are building the hippocampus? I think you want to be very careful about your health as you grow older. Uh, You want to be trying out new things, uh, take up a musical instrument, start playing card games if you've never done that before. Also, um, meditate because meditation is about taking stress off the self. I mean, I I have such a demanding job that I have to meditate early in the morning because if I didn't, I could implode. So mm-hmm. mindfulness, meditation, you know, if you worship in, in, a, in a congregation of some kind, prayer, um, uh, listening to this quiet music, uh, just being careful of your, of, your, of, your, of your state and your energy and your anxiety and being attentive to it. But there's so much to be – also just healthy eating. I mean, everybody now agrees that – you know, um, above the ground vegetables are are good 
to uh, diminish the likelihood of uh, memory loss. So that means vegetables uh, like, uh, you know, uh, green leafy things, uh, tomatoes, you name it, but not, not starchy stuff that grows under the ground, but the things that grow above ground. And also um, uh, tea uh, seems to be helpful. Stay away from the sugars, stay away from a lot of, a lot of carbohydrates because the brain is, is better off uh, when it gets when it gets away from those kinds of sugars, so there's a lot people can do dietetically, behaviorally, ex- just walking. There have been a lot of good studies on just walking a half an hour, not fast, just right. a, a peaceful walk for half an hour a day allows for more brain circulation, and that's important because uh, you know oftentimes now the neurologists talk about mixed diagnosis. It's it's Alzheimer's, but it's also what you know, small stroke events in the white matter of the brain, and that's called multi-infarct dementia or vascular dementia. So it's usually a combination of things. And so if you can get your, if you can keep your exercise up a little bit, uh, circulation is improving, and that's good for your for your brain cells. Yeah, and today's National Take a Walk Day. Did you know that? <laughs> No, is it? Oh, really? I saw it on. I was walking out this morning, and I saw it on Good Morning America, and I'm like, "Oh, that's will take a walk day." You know, yeah. I haven't done it yet because I did my workout in the morning. I have to do it early, and I have to um, do yeah. yoga and meditate early in the morning, as you do, or else forget it. I won't make it through the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A little yoga goes a long way on this. It, it oh, helps it does. a lot. Yeah. I've seen an increase in the number of people attending yoga classes in the past, I'm going to say, like 25 years. I've seen a huge increase, and not just women. There's lots of guys that are going to yoga, and not just, you know, athletes or anything like that, because they do and, and did before in order to stay limber and flexible, but attorneys, doctors, surgeons. I mean, it's amazing the high-level people I've seen in yoga class. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You've you really got to does. keep your balance, you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is. It's all about balance. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, right now we're going to take a short break for what we call our Soju Share, but today it's going to be a little bit different. Today I'm going to talk about the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, or the CRC or the UNCRC. It's an international human rights treaty which sets out the civil, political, economic, social, health, and cultural rights of children. And the convention defines a child as any human being under the age of 18 unless the age of majority is attained earlier under national legislation. Nations that have ratified this convention or have acceded to it are bound by international law. And when a state has signed the treaty but not ratified it, it is not yet bound by the treaty's provisions, but it is already obliged to act contrary to its purpose. The U.N. General Assembly adopted the convention and opened it for signature on November 20th of 1989. It came into force on September 2nd of 1990 after it was ratified by the required number of nations, which took about, it looks like, 10 months from November of 89 to September of 1990. But here's what really blows my mind. As of April 4th, 2023, so that's yesterday. (laughs) As of yesterday, 33 years after it was ratified by the required number of countries, 196 countries are party to it, including every member of the United Nations except one. And that country is the United States of America. The U.S. is not bound by the treaty's provisions, though it is obligated to not go against its purpose. Wow. I mean, that leaves a lot of room for loopholes. Given what we've seen across this nation, specifically pertaining to legislation in just the last few years, that means those rights for our children can be questioned and potentially taken away. We've seen it with Roe v. Wade, and let's not forget the Women's Rights Amendment, ERA, in case you're not aware, has still not been certified as ratified. Why? My guess, the red tape, as well as the arguments of politics, there's so much left to interpretation, especially when decades have passed, that what is of the utmost importance is sometimes completely forgotten. You know, a majority vote from SCOTUS on issues that are not ratified to either remain so or be reversed is not inconceivable. The fact that the ERA amendment has not been ratified is a disgrace. But the fact that we are not a party to the International Human Rights Treaty for Children is beyond disgusting. The only country to not ratify. And we at Soji Helgos believe children are sacred. They are our greatest natural resource, and we need to treat them with dignity and respect, which is the birthright of every human being, regardless of their state of health, economic status, or anything else. 
And while our soju share is typically where we spotlight children who are doing so much good in the world, today, given our topic for the show, I opted to spotlight the rights of children, all children, so that more children will be safe, treated with fairness, dignity, respect, and learn to be helpful and kind toward others because that's how we treat them. Children emulate what they see when we're kind, caring, and respectful. They learn that, and in turn, they act in the same way toward everybody else. Since our country seems to be lacking in taking a stand for our children, it's up to each of us to do so. So working together, a society that aims for the betterment of everyone and remains for respect and kindness toward each other. So Soji focuses on the good our children bring to us, and we share that with you each week. Our children are making this world better and more joyful, not just for themselves, but for everybody, for all of us. So we need to help them to continue to do that by giving them the dignity and respect they deserve. So that's today's Soji Share. It's not a particular child. We're trying to help all children. So let's see. Back to our discussion with Dr. Stephen Post, co-founder of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love and author of Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. You can learn more by visiting the website unlimitedloveinstitute.org. So you can write that down now so you can check it out after the show. So, Stephen, let's see. Where were we? Hey, can I say something about kids? Absolutely. So I have a great friend at Case Western Medical School in Cleveland named Peter Whitehouse, who's very distinguished as a neurologist. And we worked together for 20 years. And he and his wife, Kathy, invented the, the um, intergenerational schools where people with dementia come into the schools, like, say, the first and second grade schools. You've got these wonderful young kids. Mm-hmm. And, and the kids... They, they love these older folks because, you know, they're not uh, so sensitive about memory capacity. Uh, they're just happy to have these people there. And these older adults with dementia, they can actually be very helpful. They'll, they'll come into their own. They'll, they'll start being able to read again, and they'll go through a picture book with a young child. And there's a beautiful bond that forms. It's the happiest thing in the world. In fact, there's an intergenerational school in Mount Kisco in, in Westchester County, but they're cropping up all over the over the country. And the point is that a, you know a child uh, can bring so much into the life of of an older adult who has memory difficulties. And and the adult brings so much to the child because we in this country don't always treat the older people as the elders that they are and to learn from them. We cast them aside, we put them in a nursing home, and we forget about them, and that's god-awful. They don't do that in other countries. They respect elders because they have experience behind them, because they have knowledge and wisdom. And so these kids, they look up to adults, and it doesn't matter who it is. If you're in a school, I would think, and they bring somebody in, you're going to trust that that person, as a child, you're going to trust that that person knows what they're doing, because why would they bring that person here and have them talk? to us and little kids like to talk and, and be with people it's inherent in their systems to just be social that is the coolest school I did not realize that I love that yeah, yeah and you're also teaching the kids um, not to not to look down upon mm-hmm. deeply forgetful people I mean obviously they're going to be aware of some difficulties but you're you're, you're acculturating them to accept the consciousness of these individuals uh, and and not to be prejudiced against them, and I think that's wonderful when you when you can do that with with kids at younger and younger ages. I think it's fabulous because yeah. we learn as children. So what you learn as children, you oftentimes take into your adulthood, and unfortunately, sometimes it's not the best things, and, and these create the beliefs that we have. So to experience that and be able to go home, and if something's happening at home to your own grandma or grandpa, you can be more, you know, um, you can be kinder toward them and you can understand better where your parents may not. Little kids teach us a lot. We have a lot to learn from little kids. And I just, yeah, I just see that and I think they're so... They're so forgiving. They're so giving. They're so kind. They're, they are. Now, people will say, well, they have temper tantrums and stuff. They're little kids. You know, that's what they're going to do. They're learning. They're new here. <laughs> you know? We yeah. have to teach them properly. That is a very cool – I like that. I like that. Thank you for adding that. That's really – I love it because that's people are taking power into their own hands to make sure that things are being done right for our children and for our elders that in this country don't get the respect that I think they deserve. Uh, and I, I'm sure you see that, too. There are people who just 
you get to a certain age, oh, they can't think on their own anymore, forget it, put them at home, and, you know, and then we'll worry about the inheritance later. I mean, it's disgusting. You know, it's, it's elder abuse, and it's disgusting. But, yeah, the, you're, you're so right. And there are many cultures where older adults really are a source of wisdom, even if they become deeply forgetful. I mean, if you look at a Chinese family or a Korean family or a Japanese family, actually the African-American family is much more accepting of people getting squirrely, quote-unquote. Um, and, and I think that's important. It's important that, that people are not diminished, that they don't lose their status, their moral considerability, uh, just because they're more deeply forgetful. But I've got to tell you, talking about children again, uh, there's a chapter in the book that talks about uh, the so-called T4 project in Germany in 1939. So they took 70,000 people, about half of them had dementia, and about half of them were children with cognitive developmental disorders. Mm-hmm. And for a year and a half, this is a, a horrible story, but they, this is what happened. They, they, this is where the hypothermia experiments began, the, the, the supercooling, the freezing experiments. So they, they would bring them out of these asylums. They would let them lie down in the snow. They would put them in the ice. They would cover them with cold water until they froze to death. And then they would bring them back into the asylums, and they would warm them up in hot water, in hot air, and the Nazis said, well, we want to know at what point it would become completely futile to send rescue teams into the cold waters of the North Atlantic. But actually, I mean, this is horrendous. And so after yeah. a year and a half, and these were, these were not um, Jewish uh, people, you know, uh, stated so respectfully. Uh, these were not uh, Polish Catholics and so forth and other discriminated against groups. These were not gays. Uh, these were people had they were they were Aryans they were pure blooded if you will but they had one thing going against them they were deeply forgetful or they were not developing in a normal way and therefore they were completely expendable they were defined yeah. as life unworthy of life as useless eaters and 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 they were exterminated and then the the same researchers went right to the death camps of Dachau and Auschwitz and that's really how medicine entered its lowest point ever. So we have to take children who have cognitive disabilities of various kinds and view them as differently abled. And we have to take older adults who have memory impairment and view them as differently abled. And we have to be one family. Exactly. And I will say that, yeah, there are parts of your book that um, I didn't like because they made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was like I can't read any more of this. I can't. I can't. I got to put it down right now. It's like, I can't do this. It was hard um, because some of the some of the stuff is just so real. And I've been to Auschwitz, so I've seen that. And while it's it, it's it wasn't like it was sorrowful. It was it was just very moving to be there and just think this can never happen again. This can never happen again. Knowing mm-hmm. all the stuff that went on and that you know, and and in this country. It's it's hard because you know I mean yeah, but for the grace of God go all of us um, anything can happen and and we don't know where where we're headed or anything like that so some mm-hmm. of this stuff is very scary you have no idea what anybody's doing but that was a very scary story that wasn't one of my yeah. questions thanks for bringing it up Stephen <laughs> yeah sorry about that sorry about that yeah I'm, well, I'm not crying too many right liver. now but oh my God okay. yeah yeah <laughs> oh jeez. Yeah. Oh, Oh, my goodness. Well, in your work, you know, I know you've seen deeply forgetful people suddenly remember events mm-hmm. just out of the blue. And I've, I know that that can happen in the middle of a conversation about something that's not even remotely close to the, the conversation. A sudden remembrance of the deeply forgetful person is relayed. And I don't think it's an unusual occurrence. It seems to be kind of normal with them that, that there's this, you're, you're talking along, and then all of a sudden something comes up. It's almost like they go in and out of this, these phases. What mm-hmm. is that that's happening that makes them go from forgetting to remembering and then forgetting again so quickly? So, quickly. I, I, you know, my definition of hope in the world of the deeply forgetful is being open to surprises. Okay. You've got to be open to surprises, and you've got to – 
look for the hints or the whispers of identity and they will they will be there sporadically but they can also be prompted by certain kinds of things like the music or the alzheimer's poets or whatever uh a piece of of, of art a symbol can be very meaningful uh take a person with dementia to the art museum and you can sit them in front of a rembrandt and and not infrequently they will begin to connect with what you're doing so so you know it, it, it there is a, this sort of in and out quality and we and i i've been calling that for many years paradoxical lucidity yeah you coined it's that maybe, phrase right yeah maybe it's, yeah, yeah I, nowadays I, I actually prefer just unexpected lucidity or surprising lucidity because paradoxical is kind of a complicated word but i think just unexpected lucidity and and the whole the whole uh, the whole point of being a good caregiver is to acknowledge. And sometimes there's purpose where you might think there isn't any. So I tell the story of a guy in Missouri who, you know, he was diagnosed with significant dementia, and he goes into this art therapy class uh, uh, for a while, and uh, he, he's got a, you know, a, a, a black uh, crayon, and he's just scribbling on this piece of paper. It looks chaotic and kind of crazy but there's always a, a a kind of a tree trunk image in the middle with two lines that go right down the middle and 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 people would ask him hey so what is that and he couldn't respond he was he wasn't capable of it but then one morning surprisingly okay this is the being open to surprises he says it's a map so my daughter can find her way to my house oh. And that stuff is not unusual. I mean, I, I talk a lot about about these experiences, and and and, and you know, I, I I give a dozen or so different illustrations, and sometimes people get deeply forgetful, and you know what? They leave behind certain kinds of negative cultural myths, like the artist Willem de Kooning. He was an abstract expressionist. He was really wild. He was the artist of anxiety. He might be out in front of the Cafe Wa getting in fistfights. Who knows? He was on the wild side, but he he was diagnosed at Cornell, and for 14 years, he had probable Alzheimer's disease. And and he lived in a in a loft in Greenwich Village with an assistant. And what he did was he just would sporadically stand up, dip, uh, dip his um, his uh, brush in acrylic, and go up to an easel, and he painted. But it was more like Georgia O'Keeffe, it wasn't this rough, edgy, crazy stuff that he always did in the past. It wasn't as 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 disruptive, but it was more peaceful and more kind. And I think maybe maybe somehow or another he forgot those negative myths. You know, I don't do nothing for nothing. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but you know that that he that somehow he became more gentle in this process, and that can happen. It doesn't always happen. It can be the reverse. But I think that's what happened to him, and I've seen that happen. I knew a guy who was a really a perfect son of a gun in in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and uh, when he was diagnosed, you know, he became the most generous, altruistic person you could ever imagine. Uh, T Love. I mean, he would he he insisted on riding in the in the passenger seat in the front of the van, and he would go into people's houses and help uh, other folks with dementia get into the van, and then he would he would he would uh, sing to them, and then they would get to the elder health care center, and he would bring them into the activities room. I mean, he became an altruist for the first time in his life wow. when he when he when he was deeply forgetful. Wow. Yeah, you have to wonder, and, and I don't know, maybe you know this, I, I wonder, when when people are in that space of deep forgetfulness, where are they? What what <laughs> are they, you know, I mean, they're present somewhere, it's just not present in what we might call a normal reality, right? Yeah. That's such a great comment. So I have a I have a wonderful old African-American pastoral friend in Cleveland. I won't give his name because he's very well known. He's originally from Detroit, and his sister passed away of probable Alzheimer's about a year and a half ago. And uh, I, you know, and he's in his mid 80s. And I, and I, and I called him on on his cell phone, and I said, "How's she doing?" He said, "Well, I'm not sure. I, 
I'm I'm here, but I'm not sure if she is. And yeah. and, 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 and 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 then then he said, you know, but what I think, and he said, this is just my intuition. I think she's gone down to the Amtrak station. This is the guy. He was you know a Baptist minister and so forth. He I think she's gone down to the Amtrak station, and she's already got one foot on that train bound for glory. So, so maybe they're ahead of us, you know. Yeah, maybe I they're mean, they, maybe they're ahead of us. Well, that's why I asked the question about being a savant. I mean, seriously, it, there's a possibility. I mean, I don't put anything out of the realm of possibility. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm smart enough to know I don't know everything, and I'm willing to learn. So I ask questions a lot, you know. I'm, I'm very inquisitive. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. the whole thing about, you know, where do they go? What do they – because if they come – if they – come to our lucid reality, our normal, and start speaking to us and say things. How do we know they're not giving us information that we need? Yeah, so you can learn from these individuals. Yeah. And, 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 hey, so I tell the story in the, in, in the book of, of going with Dr. Joseph Foley, who was one of the best-known neurologists of his generation. He passed away now, and the book is devoted to Dr. Foley. Uh, but uh, we went to a nursing home uh, called Heather Hill in Chardon, Ohio. And we went into a special care unit for people who have dementia. And we read a little uh, bio sketch on the wall of a guy named Jim. It said, you know, Jim had a couple of sons and he'd been a, um, an accountant and the like. And so I asked the nurse, you know, would you show us where Jim is? Because out in the main, main floor, people were ambulating and so forth. And so uh, she showed me Jim and I took Jim by the by the arm and, and 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 I called him by name and he couldn't respond. Sat him down, and uh, and I did. I made a linguistic mistake. I asked him, Jim, how are your sons? And he he was nervous about that and anxious. But then when I realized, okay, I just need to give him the names of his sons. How's Jake? And how's Dave? He just lit up like I mean, if if joy was electric, the place would have been on fire. Because when you when you use language with these folks, you have to give them hints at the words that they they're otherwise they're under pressure to try to retrieve language, but you have to incorporate the language they need to make it easier for them to communicate. So that went well, and then he took a, he had a twig in his hand, which was you know, a, a just you know it was painted white, and it was blunted on the end, so he couldn't you know hurt anybody with it, but he he put it in my hand, put it in my palm. And when he did that, he smiled this amazing smile, and 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 then he said, "Okay, here's my response to your question, T. Love." He said, "God is love." And I went to the nurse, and I said, "What's the story with this twig?" And she said, "Well, you know, like a lot of these folks, he kind of goes back into his earlier life because that's where they can connect more with their identity, and." And he loved his father very much, and his father raised him on a farm, and his chore in the morning was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. And of course, you know, they just went to a regular everyday church, but it was a, you know, a, a, a worshiping family. So he, that symbol, that symbol of the stick, uh, I think it, 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 it captured the kindling that, that he, he, he associated with the tender, loving care of his father. So there, there you have it. And then there was a okay. There was a doll on the floor. Now this was the most beat up. It was one of these hand puppet dolls that maybe you got when you were a little girl, you know. And uh, it was a it was a lion doll. And this thing looked like it had been through three world wars. And 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 there was no hair left on it or anything. And believe it or not, so Jim walks over to this thing, and he picks it up. And then very slowly, he walks to the corner where there's a woman on a chair, and she's whimpering, and she's crying a bit. Great care and great tenderness. He puts it on her lap, taps her on the shoulder a few times, you know, just comforts her, and walks away. And she stopped crying. And, of course, I asked the nurse, what's the story with that doll? Well, that was her doll. That was her symbol. He knew that. So he had emotional intelligence. And yeah. symbolic intelligence, even even to the end. Can personalities change? Yeah, they can. You know, I mean, th- that's, but that's uh, not compli- the norm. Well, you know, it's uh, sometimes people who have been 
very generous and had very good behavior and language over the course of their lives, you know, they will become more rough and coarse. They become disinhibited. But that's rare. The major like experience... Like the gentleman that you talked about and said that he became altruistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The major thing that happens with these folks is that they, 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 they're able to, to get beyond the negative myths of, of our culture that somehow, you know, the only thing that's good is to be tough and to be a you know, <laughs> selfish individual and you don't want to be too generous and compassionate. It's not masculine or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think sometimes there's a, I call it disinhibition. And I've seen that many, many times. Um, so people's personalities uh, can change. They can, they can get more in touch with that child you're talking about. You know, the, the studies at the Yale Child Center, Paul Bloom, where the, 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 the kids have empathy when they look at these puppet shows. And, and they're not just sort of swashbuckling sons of guns, but there's, a, there's an empathic aspect to the, even the 18-month, the one-year-old, even the six-month-old child that's been measured now, and no one disagrees with it. So I think what happens sometimes is that, you know, in life, the wrong buttons get pushed. The, the culture tells us we, we've got to run constantly from point A to point B, and we can't take time to connect with anybody. But actually, when you, when you, when you become deeply forgetful, you have to live more or less in the present. You, you, you know, you, you get beyond past and, and future, and you're kind of living in the present, and you can connect with people and there's a beauty in that, and I think that's what de Kooning felt, and I think that's what a lot of people feel. It's somehow, you know, we don't we don't slow down enough to care. Yeah, we don't. Everything is just too, you know, you have to do it now, or better yet, you should have done it yesterday before I even told you you needed to do it. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, we live in a very crazy, and everything has to be um, so immediate. There is no. That's why meditation and yoga and practices like that are so so very important, so that you can. Slow down because your brain can't handle it. Your brain needs to rest and rejuvenate, and we're not allowing that to happen at all. You know, I remember seeing an episode. I don't know if you're familiar with the show Grey's Anatomy. I, I know the show. I've, I've okay. seen all of it. A few I, of them. I, years, years ago, there was one of the gentlemen on the show was married to a woman on the show. You know, the characters were married, and the wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's, and she knew it in that moment. You know. She was told, and that has to be extremely sad for someone. But what happened was he put her in a place where they would be able to help her because he was a doctor and he wasn't around all the time, and he'd go and visit her, and then she met somebody in this place and fell in love with that person and was telling her current husband that she didn't realize was her current husband that she's going to marry this dude over here. And, you know, and he allowed that to go. He divorced her and allowed it to go so that she could have a life. And, you know, I thought, you know, that's, that's sad, number one, but when, like, Ronald Reagan was diagnosed with dementia, and he wrote a letter to the American people, yes. saying, you know, letting us know. And to know that and to be, to be in those moments when you're not lucid, when, when you're in that forgetful state and it gets worse and worse, when you come back to those states of you're here in our normal reality, are these people sad because they then know again that uh. they're you know, I mean, where, where does uh, that play in? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I've written a bunch of articles about exactly this issue. I kind of left it out of the book. There's a little bit of it in there. But yeah. it's very important because, yeah, so sometimes people who are deeply forgetful, they kind of behave like adolescents. There's a lot of hand-holding, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> they're a little on the romantic side. They're disinhibited. So it's it's you know they'll go into say a assisted living program, uh, and um, they can they can connect emotionally with uh, individuals there, and it's very frustrating for their caregiver because you know they've spent their whole lives together, and um, you know their identity is 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 this journey together. This is a serious matter. But yeah. now you know they've kind of lost sight of that. So, so I've, I, I'm actually uh, not in favor of just you know vive la différence and let anything happen, because I think you want to pay attention to the integrity of the journey of a life. And yeah. also, I've seen many cases, many cases, where 
individuals um, would in fact become quasi or sexually intimate, you know, fully so, with uh, some uh, perfect stranger, and then they do sort of come back into themselves, and they're absolutely devastated by it, and and I think it's a form of abuse because they're not really able uh, to be self-aware in making those kinds of decisions. So I'm I'm not for this kind of uh, hedonic uh, utilitarianism. I'm much more in favor of people, uh, uh, caregivers who see these situations, you know, sort of be present and then uh, look for those opportunities to reconnect. And they will come, you know, uh, the symbols of the family, the pictures over the mantel place in the in the assisted living center there you you can reconnect and i think that's the way to do it not just say okay anything goes yeah i agree with you i think more so um but when somebody is in their you know let's say that they're they're in a lucid state and they see family members and they recognize them and and they realize that oh wow here's my family and everything and the holidays (laughs) coming up but i might not be there for them because i have this disease is it that back and forth has got to is got to be something that is concerning for the individual when they're lucid. Do they understand that they're lucid right now, but it might not last that long? And and you know, it's like saying goodbye all over well, again. Well, yeah. So, um, I mean, in the in the early in the early stages of these dementias, <clears throat> um, people uh, really do struggle because they realize that. Uh, certain aspects of their identity are being yeah. lost, but they get to a point, and you know, I hate to even speak of this, but if there's a kind point in all this, it's when people kind of forget that they forget. Cause then, well, that's what I was the, wondering. Yeah. yeah, and it's that's very well documented, and then they're no longer insightful into their losses, so they're not they're not they're not emotionally struggling over it. They just kind yeah. of drift into the pure present. And now, you know, but when that, when that occurs, of course, they're, they're, they will have moments of lucidity, significant moments of lucidity, and and you don't want to uh, uh, underestimate the importance of those. But it, they may just look at life very differently. It's like Oliver Sacks' uh, 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 book, uh, great book, "The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat." Mm-hmm. You know, so don't don't worry about it. I mean, just go into their reality. It's not like because you're a psychologist. I mean. You know, 40 years ago, like in my grandmother's day, they would have a a psychologist gathered in a room with all these people who were deeply forgetful, and he'd be up at the blackboard with chalk and be saying, "Who's the president?" You know, and and uh, uh, what what's what day is it? And 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 trying to get them to repeat this stuff back. It was ludicrous because they were, you know, you can't just bring these people back into chronological reality you have to kind of give them room to be to be who they are and you have to enter into that world and 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 that's fine you don't have to be the 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 person who runs the show just you know be where they are yeah you have to meet them there yeah yeah i was that just really you know that i thought about that and i thought that's got to be sad you know every time that you're lucid and and, but there's got to be a point where it just like it all goes away or or whatever, I don't know. We are almost yeah. out of time, Stephen, but before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and your work, the Institute, and where they may purchase dignity for deeply forgetful people, as well as all of your other wonderful books? Uh, okay, well, thank you, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, any any uh, online book marketer is the way to go. I mean, you know, Amazon or whatever you use. But Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People has done really well it's it's published by Johns Hopkins University Press, which is a pretty persnickety and choosy mm-hmm. press, and 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 they're like the best in the world on on these kinds of themes about dementia and caregivers. Uh, so I was really pleased that they took the book, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, endorses it because he yeah. says, you know, what you're what you're talking about here. He, you know, it's is not like you know. Okay, if people don't have linear rationality and can carry out tasks, he says it doesn't really matter. They still have consciousness. They can enjoy 
the autumn leaves, the breeze, the, 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 they can cherish nature on a beautiful afternoon. They can smell an apple pie at McDonald's, you know, whatever. <laughs> but the point is, you know, that reminds them of when they were kids at their grandmother's house. So, um, uh, you know, he says that it, it, it's about consciousness and interconnectedness, and that's what we need in our world. That's what we can learn from connecting with these people. We can learn how to live better lives with one another. So I'm... Even, I'm mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I will say, your book is beautiful because it... It, although it is dignity for deeply forgetful people, it should be something that a lot of a lot other people will read. You don't have to know somebody that has Alzheimer's or any other kind of um, mind-related, dementia-related disease. Mm-hmm. Read the book simply because you get so much out of it, and it brings forth more compassion. It brings forth more empathy toward others on a wow. daily basis because you don't know what anybody is going through. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot that you can learn out of this. As I read through it, I thought there's a lot of teaching here that's not just for people to be able to – the caregivers. Caregivers need all the help they can get, and caregivers need a break. People just Mm -hmm. think, you know, 24-7 just keep going. You know, they're like Energizer Bunnies. They're not. They, They need a break. They need a half day off. They need a full day off. They need time away so that they can do their own things and not just tend to the necessities, but to take care yes. of themselves and nurture themselves. And this book, it brings out so much of that. I, I just could see, so, and I don't know if it's because I read a lot or the people I talk with a lot. I don't know. I just know that reading this book, there was something more to it than just, than just for people with Alzheimer's. So I, I would suggest yeah. that people go out Great. and read it. It will improve your own life. And, you know, down the road, because we don't know what's happening to any of us, it will help to improve because what you put out, you usually get back. I believe that. And, you know, I just think it was so well written, so well done. You will laugh, you will smile, you will cry, but it's worth it. It's such a good book. And it's not because it's an entertaining book. It's because it's real and you feel it. It really really hits you in your gut. So it's full of, full, full of stories I experienced so much yeah. in those years and still do. But, you know, the, uh, so my website is Stephen with a PhD post, P-O-S-T. Uh, you know, grandfather had married Emily, by the way. Uh, and right, so, yes. We talked about uh, that on one show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but Stephen G. Post at dot com, and you can see uh, the book and a lot of, a lot of different things about the deeply forgetful individuals. So I just feel grateful. I'm so grateful, truly, to the people I met um, uh, in Cleveland, but even before that, and who got and my grandmother, people who just kind of sparked me, uh, turned the light on about the dignity of these individuals, that we can hold them in grace, we can see them as worthy of our love and attention, even though that can be difficult, and uh, not just ride, write them off and maltreat them, which is, which is a very common problem. Yeah, it is. And all human beings have the right to be treated with dignity and respect. We need to do that. So even reading the book and getting that out of it for everyone, because you don't know who you're going to meet down the road. You, know, you don't mm-hmm. know who, is, who you're going to meet that's going to have somebody who knows someone or who themselves will be diagnosed, you don't know. But to, to learn how to treat with dignity is so important in our world. It's so, so important. And I think that's probably the thing that comes the most out of this is just the learning of that. What does that mean? Go ahead and read the book and, and you will find out exactly how to do that because it's right in there and it's very moving, very, very moving. I, well, you did a great job. Thank you so much. Coming from you, T. Love, that means a lot, and I oh, I respect well, your opinion you. immensely. So that's, well, that's a good your work thing. Well, all has been really good. That's why I keep having you back. I think you're coming back in June too. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I have to look at the calendar. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm work. I'm working on a new book now, but it's not going to be out for at least a year. No, well, that's okay. Um, we'll have you back again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but so I'm real. But I'm very grateful to have had the interactions over the years. Um, yeah. I mean, this this book is based on like 25 years of traveling around the United States and doing programs with caregivers and doing a whole lot of activity in that world and really learning it from the heart and 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 and, and, and having a new way to think about these individuals that's much more uplifting for for them but also for us. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so very much. We just hold on the line for a couple of minutes, and I'll be right with you. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, listeners, we need you to spread the word. You know what to do. Send a link to this show to everybody you know so that they can learn and grow too. Share, share, share. That's what we like to see here. On behalf of everyone here at From the Heart Radio, I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at From the Heart Radio. Please check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. Just check it out at sojikids.org and follow us on Twitter at Soji Huggles. And while you're in social media, please be sure to like us on Facebook, Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. Our From the Heart Radio thought for this week is from Gilbert K. Chesterton. When people begin to ignore human dignity, it will not be long before they begin to ignore human rights. I am your host, T. Love, here at From the Heart Radio, intending you and yours a most enjoyable week. Happy Passover to those celebrating Passover. Tonight's the first night. Happy Easter on Sunday. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. <laughs>